When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to Working, the show about what people do all day. I'm your host, June Thomas, Senior Managing Producer of Slate Podcasts and one of the hosts of The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender and feminism. And I am your host, Isaac Butler. I do all sorts of things like writing and directing plays and doing podcasts and stuff. But what Slate people would probably know me best for is I hosted Lend Me Your Ears, a podcast about Shakespeare and politics for Slate. And I am the co-author with Slate's very own Dan Coyce of The World Only Spins Forward, The Ascent of Angels in America. I'm Ramon Alam. I am a novelist and freelance writer. I am one of Slate's care and feeding advice columnists, and I also am one of the hosts of Slate's Gay Power podcast, Outward. That's right. As I told Jordan Weissman in last week's episode, working is getting a revamp. The three of us will be interviewing creative people and learning things like how they come up with ideas, how they make creative choices, and how they make decisions about their careers. This week, I'll be talking to Veronica Roth, the author of the Divergent series, Veronica sold millions of books when she was still in her 20s. Chosen Ones, which comes out on April 7th, is her seventh novel, and it's her first book explicitly targeted at adult readers. As I was re-listening to this interview, I realised it was recorded on my last day in the office. Only a day earlier, the MBA had announced it was suspending play, and Honestly, when we did this, it feels like about a million and one years ago. It's a completely different era. And that's affected us too. We'd been planning this revamp for a while, and then we had to revamp our revamp so it could work remotely. Almost all of our interviews have been done remotely. We're all recording from home right now. I'm in my home office, which is what New Yorkers call any room without a window. I'm worried that my cat's going to be making a noise outside Roman, where are you? I am also in a room without a window, a little interior room in our tiny little house in Brooklyn. This is my office now. It used to be the nursery when my younger son was a baby. And I'm sitting on the floor surrounded by blankets and books, hoping (laughs) they will absorb the noise of the traffic passing by about 10 feet from where I'm sitting. But all things said, there are many worse places I could be right now. It's kind of one of the comforts of the work that all of us do is that we can easily do it from home. And it hasn't represented a big disruption in my life. And, you know, it's... uh, I was going to say it's kind of nice being around my kids all day, but I don't know if I think that's actually true. <laughs> but it's uh, it's something. It's something. It, maybe it's true right now when they're not actually there right. with you. <laughs> it, it's true right now when my, my husband has generously taken them out for a run. <laughs> and Isaac? Uh, so we actually left New York. We live in Brooklyn, where I work out of my basement 
all the time anyway. So the, the big adjustment was when my wife stopped going into the office, the basement office was, you know, her deal and I had to camp out in our bedroom. But now we actually just decided to make everything more complicated and we are in the middle of nowhere in Virginia. So I am now in a bedroom <laughs> in Virginia, um, <laughs> hoping that no one walks on the floor immediately above where I am because it's like a, it's like a drum. I'm gonna make a big booming sound sound. But the other big adjustment to my own working habits is that I'm actually doing, you know, most of the childcare now. Iris's school is closed. And so I have her for most of the day. So trying to fit in all my work around, that's been its own sort Mm -hmm. of curious uh, challenge. I do like 90 minutes in the morning and another 45 minutes in the afternoon, which is when we're, you know, recording this now and, and stuff like that. So that's, that's actually been as big, if not a bigger adjustment than physically working from home because I was trying to finish a book. So I was never leaving the house to begin with. Right. I believe that your packing for making this move involved stuffing, what, tens, dozens, hundreds of books (laughs) into a suitcase? There is an entire suitcase full of books that I brought down with me for research purposes because we have no idea how long we're going to be gone. But I just had to make sure I had everything I could possibly think of that might be useful with me. And sure enough, you know, I definitely forgot something. When I when I go back through it, I'm sure I'm going to be like, curses, why didn't I bring that third biography of Tennessee Williams with me or whatever? <laughs> Well, so part of working now will involve us talking about our creative dilemmas, our creative challenges and our creative triumphs as well. So let's talk a little bit about what you guys are working on. You're working on a book about... So, yeah, my book is called The Method, and it is a history of the method as in method acting. So it it spans 100 years, uh, first in Russia and then in the United States from about 1890 to the 1990s, let's say. And I I like to think of it as a biography of an idea. So Mm -hmm. it's supposed to feel sort of like a biography. It has that kind of narrative flow of a biography, but, you know, hidden within that is a cultural history of how our idea of what acting is changed in the 20th century mm-hmm. and how that changed American pop culture alongside it. Isaac, when you're working on a project like that, do you do the research and the writing simultaneously or are they stages? <laughs> well, I, I have no choice but to do both at the same time because of how tight the deadline mm-hmm. is. But it has changed as the book has gone along. So the book's in three parts. I'm working on the third part now. Part one, I would research each chapter and then write that chapter. So every month was spent on a chapter, basically. And then in part two, mostly because all the people were the same from chapter to chapter. I researched the whole thing and then wrote it in this, you know, sort of bewildered fugue state over the course of like six weeks. I think I wrote, I wrote, you know, like, that's how writing that's how writing always feels to me. Yeah. yeah. And then the crazy thing is is I finished part 2 and I said, "Okay, I'm going to give myself whatever is the next calendar weekday off to celebrate and then I'm going to go into part 3 and I had breakfast with one friend on that day and lunch with another friend on that day and in the middle of lunch I got the email that my kid's school was closed." Um so uh, that was March 7th I guess plans, and so right? Yeah. And so from then on I've just sort of been trying to catch up and and keep up with everything that's going on. What about you, Ramon? What's your book? Well, my third novel is coming out October 6th. And at any rate, that's the current plan. The 
sort of the larger crisis unfolding in the country has had ramifications in every business, including publishing. But at the moment, the plan is that the book is due out October 6th. My work on the book itself is concluded. I'm sort of in the stage of publishing a book where we're talking with the marketing director and the publicity director about the plans for introducing the book to the world. And again, those plans now feel quite different. So that's, I'm just at the stage of sort of pure anxiety um, (laughs) of sending this book out into an uncertain world. Yeah. Mm. What is the uh, novel about? Uh, My novel is called Leave the World Behind. And it is about a family who is on summer vacation in an Airbnb on Long Island. And the second night of their vacation, there's a knock at the door and a couple appears and says that this is their home and they've rented it to them and they have fled New York City because there is some unspecified emergency unfolding. They have no internet and no cell phone service and and they spend the rest of the book trying to determine whether or not there is in fact some unspecified emergency happening out in the world. It is sort of an eerie eerily prescient story in a weird way. So what you're saying is this is all your fault. Yeah. Yeah. Please promise me you'll only use your powers for good, Ramon. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as we try to escape our fate, uh, shall we go ahead and give a listen to the interview? Let's do it. But first, some messages from our sponsors. What's the best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful, tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com slash working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash working. Rules and restrictions may apply. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, Veronica. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? I'm fine. <laughs> we, we, we might be doing this on the last day that people leave their homes. Um, who are you and what do you do? 
My name is Veronica Roth, and I am an author of sci-fi fantasy books. Some of them are for young adults, and some of them are not. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you have a new book coming out April 7th, Chosen Ones, and we will get to that. That's a new book written for adults. But first, tell me how you came to write your first book and when you did that. Well, I wrote the rough draft of Divergent when I was a senior in college. I was on a winter break at the time. (laughs) And which I know sounds bananas. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It does. It does. mm -hmm. So I had a long winter break because I was on the quarter system. Not that that um, (laughs) makes it entirely not bananas, but it does help a little bit. So I wrote a a very abridged draft of the book during that time and then went back to school and tried to stay on top of my schoolwork. And at the same time, I tried to see if anyone would be interested in representing me. So that was the start. So you wrote that book very quickly. I mean, I've seen interviews, it was 50 days. I don't know if that's precise, but it sounds like over a break, that would be the very maximum. Have the other books that you've written kind of come out so easily? No, absolutely not. I mean, that was the first time that it ever happened, and it was also (laughs) the last time. (laughs) Why do you think that one worked that way? I mean, it's like one of those births that just happens like on the way to the hospital kind of thing. Why was that one so easy, or why were the other ones harder? Yeah, I think it was a lot about timing. So I had written a complete manuscript before that point, And that had taken, you know, the better part of three or four years. So it was like I had just realized that I could, in fact, finish a novel-length story. And at the same time, I had gotten this one really useful piece of feedback from a professor at that time. She circled this really simply and straightforwardly written paragraph in one of my pieces that I submitted. And she said, this is the best writing in the piece basically implying, like, stop trying so hard to overwrite everything else that you do. (laughs) Um, Interesting. Right. So I had decided, based on that feedback, to embrace an extremely pared down and straightforward writing style, which I think is my natural style. But I had resisted it for a long time because it didn't feel like that was poetic enough or, like, that's not what good writers do or something like that. So Divergent was very much... The first time I really let myself be the writer that I actually was instead of the one I thought I was supposed to be. So I think that's kind of why it was it came so easily. But the fact, you know, that a piece of advice, a piece of feedback was so central to your first published work, that feels very encouraging. Was that the only time that you have kind of had that sort of feedback loop as far as being taught how to write? No, I've had that a lot. I was in the creative writing program at Northwestern University where it's just a very small program. There's about 15 people Mm. in each section, fiction, creative nonfiction, and poetry. So it was me uh, and 14 other writers who had applied to the program and gotten in. Mm. And at one point, I remember I submitted a short story like everyone does, and then you have to sit there for a workshop, which means you're not allowed to speak, and people just pick apart your work for about a half hour, mm. and you're just, you can't respond, mm. <laughs> um, which I think is an amazing system. And someone just sat there and summarized my story to me. He said everything that happened in it, and I realized, oh my gosh, this story is packed full of drama, and I really need to pare down what I try to focus on in this short story form. And that was another moment of big creative shift, I think, or shift in writing skill. So I've had a couple of those throughout my life. Wow. But 
Did they all feel the same as you were writing them? Were there different challenges each time? There definitely were, yeah. So when I was writing the second one, Insurgent, that was the first time I had written a book knowing that people would read it. (laughs) And so I had to learn how to navigate writing while a lot of um, eyes were on me, kind of. I mean, you know, obviously they weren't literally on me at the time (laughs) that I was writing. But yeah, but I knew people will read this and their opinions and my, my anticipation of their opinions was really hard to navigate. And I think everyone who has gotten published and then tries to write their second book has this feeling it's the, we call it the second book slump. Mm. So it's hard. <laughs> yeah. But then that one did well. And then how did that affect the third one? Because by then you'd done the, no one's watching, you'd done the, a lot of people are watching. How did that play out for number three? Well, the third one I was writing while they were making the Divergent movie. Whoa. So that was... Another challenge. I mean, I had written a draft and then they started filming, but I was editing Allegiant on the set of Divergent sometimes. So that was a real trip. Um, (laughs) It was a pretty wonderful time, but also a strange time to be making anything creative and to try to remind myself that it was okay to take risks. And of course, with Allegiant, I had planned from the beginning to take a very big risk at the end of that book. So committing to that was, I don't know, kind of the oddest part of that book. I also realized that in the first book of the series, I had set myself up with a real structural problem. Mm. And in the third book, I had to contend with it. And there was just nothing I could do about it. So that was another learning experience for sure. That was about world building? Yes. So in the first two books, it's sort of contained in the city of Chicago, which is, you know, a dystopian city at this point. And then in the third book, they have to leave which then sets you up for this huge unloading of information. Mm. And that's not a great thing for a book. Like, it might work in a movie. Like, here you are. We're going to explain everything to you. But in a book, it's like 30 pages of backstory, (laughs) which isn't good. (laughs) Yeah, it's hard to do that montage kind of situation in a book, right? Yeah, you really can't. No montages in books. That is a thing that I've learned. (laughs) So just to get back to you said that the filming of Divergent and kind of being aware of that affected, if not exactly the writing, certainly the editing, the final outcome of Allegiant. Can you say a bit more about how that influence happened? Well, I think it made me occasionally consider the kind of visual part of scenes differently, like what was possible to film. I know that's um, that's odd, but Yeah, so I thought about that a little more. I also had to very consciously ignore certain things because there were a lot of characters that looked different, you know, in the book Uh than on the screen. And so, you know, you have to you find yourself describing this character and thinking, oh, that's not what they look like, actually. (laughs) So keeping those straight was uh, was a challenge. So it was almost as if someone else's vision almost was kind of infiltrating your vision, even though you were the person who had invented them. Yes, Sometimes this worked in a positive way. So um, one of the main problems of the first movie is, you know, they cast Kate Winslet as my main antagonist, Janine. And the trick was that Janine, as a character in the book, is a little bit of like a kind of mustache twirling, like (laughs) very arch villain. And they were struggling with that because Kate Winslet is a very capable actress Mm. and they wanted to write a more nuanced character for her. Mm. And so hearing about that and then trying to, I was developing a new antagonist for Allegiant. Mm. It made me think, 
like you really have to focus on making sure that this person is more complicated. And ever since then, I've tried to do a better job of making sure that even your quote unquote bad guys have an inner life. That was a positive part of the experience for sure. I'm very curious how you came up with the idea of your big bad, the Dark Lord. Like, How did you go about creating a character who's designed to be hated and who you really want your readers to believe is the absolute worst? I think it started on on the conceptual level with, with the book. So my idea for Chosen Ones is that it's very much about this post-adolescent experience of entering the world and trying to navigate being an adult in the world, which I think happens to people a little later now. Mm. So it's kind of post post college in your 20s, when you're just trying to figure out how to be a grown up, Mm. basically in the world. And my idea for that is that if you fight something evil, when you are a teenager, you're going to see it as very kind of black and white, this this guy's a bad guy, and he needs to be stopped. It's very simplistic view of evil. And as you get older, you realize that Um, situations and people are more complicated than that. So the entire book of Chosen Ones is meant to be unraveling my main character Sloane's understanding of what happened to her before and also what's happening to her now. Mm. That everything has become more gray and more weird and more muddled as she's gotten older because that's kind of the experience I've had in my 20s, just realizing how complicated things are. Yeah, well, your books came out when young adult was really booming. And feels like you were one of the very few people who actually was a young adult when they were publishing young adult writing. Did that get recognized at the time that you were doing that? I think so. I think that was kind of what people attributed the success to, Mm. the fact that I was kind of speaking to people who are around my age. And there's something to that. I mean, there was when I reread Divergent now, I think this has an immediacy with regard to like how it addresses teenage feelings and experiences, mm-hmm. you know, and that's part of the appeal of it. I think it was very much like speaking on the same level with young adults. And that's what young adult fiction is supposed to do. It's supposed to speak to the teen experience as if you are moving forward through that experience, as opposed to like reflecting back, yeah. which a lot of adult fiction that has young characters will do. Uh-huh. And really in Chosen Ones, Sloan and the other characters, but especially Sloan, is reflecting back on what happened 10 years ago. So is that one of the reasons that you think that it's more adult and one of the differences there? Yeah, I mean, that's part of it. Uh, Another part is just that, you know, most young adult fiction is like coming of age, kind of coming into your own, becoming the person that you're meant to be. And I think adult fiction is more about like, okay, well, what now? (laughs) (laughs) And that's kind of what Chosen Ones is. It's wondering how to deal with what's happened to you and learning that pain doesn't give you license to be an asshole. And those just don't feel, they feel like a, adult mm. struggles to me. That's not something that a teenager is going to think about. Hmm. So Chosen Ones is also about a woman who, while still young, is mostly known as someone who achieves something remarkable, like truly outside the norm as a very young woman. That character Sloane is tall and white and lives in Chicago. Veronica Roth, are you Sloan? Oh, man. Well, um, the similarities are certainly intentional, but I am not. <laughs> Definitely not. Uh, but I would say that Sloan is a little bit of a wish fulfillment character for me in a strange way. So she's certainly confused, traumatized, angry, mm. and those things are not wish fulfillment things. But she's also extremely unconcerned with the way other people perceive her and very focused on what she wants to do in her life. And I find that really admirable. And it was a little bit cathartic writing about someone who's just so mad. (laughs) 
Because <laughs> I don't feel like I can do that, you know? Wow. So your first books were written as a series. Carve the Mark was also a series, right? Mm-hmm. First of all, how do you decide if something will be part of a series? And then how did you decide how many books it would take to tell the overall story? Well, hmm, that's a good question. <laughs> For me, when an idea comes to me, I kind of have an idea of its size. Mm. So I write a lot of short fiction, and it's always clear what is a short story idea and what's a novel idea. And sometimes the idea feels even bigger than a novel, and that's usually when I know that it's a series. However, with the Divergent series and with Carve the Mark, I proposed each of those as both a duology and a trilogy. (laughs) So I outlined the duology, and then I outlined the trilogy, and then I would ask my uh, trusted friend and agent to tell me which one she thought was a better shape for those books. Because, you know, which one allows a little bit of room to breathe conceptually? Which one feels like it's maybe stretched out too far? (laughs) That was what happened with Carve the Mark, which is a duology. I sent her the trilogy outline and the duology outline, and she said, the trilogy outline has a lot of filler, Mm -hmm. so just do the duology. And Divergent was kind of the opposite. Opposite in the sense that it was started as a duology and there was too much for that particular shape? Yeah, she was like, I think you're just trying to cram too much into a small space. Like, you certainly have enough for three books. So you should probably do that. And also, I mean, there's a different structure there. It's not quite so straightforward. You'd have to rework it when you do a trilogy versus a duology because you ha- you need three distinct arcs for a trilogy and then one bigger one that kind of like d- floats on top of them. Right. Um, trilogies are much harder to structure is what I've discovered. <laughs> now, I just want to step back a little bit to something you said about when you were figuring out the shape of other projects that you've done. And you talked about consulting a very trusted advisor. And that Mm -hmm. feels very important. How did you find the person who you trust to really give you important feedback on your writing? Well, um, there are two people who give me really important feedback on my writing. Uh, One of them is my husband, because he's just, he's not a writer. He's just a reader. Mm -hmm. And That's very important because he can tell me, this doesn't make sense. This is boring. This is interesting. You know, very normal, like, reader reactions. And he is very helpful that way. But my agent has been my biggest writing advisor, I would say, throughout the years. And I met her at a writer's conference, man, 11 years ago, (laughs) 12 years ago. I don't know. So when you were, (laughs) when you had that first draft of Divergent, it was when you met her? So what happened is that my other manuscript, the one that has not been published and never will, Ah. um, (laughs) I had submitted that to her and she rejected it, but she gave me some good notes. Mm. And so when I wrote Divergent, I sent her Divergent because I thought, she said, you know, I like your writing, but this project isn't working. Um, (laughs) So send me the next thing you do. And for Divergent, I got two offers from two different agents. One of them was her. And she had nine pages of single-spaced notes. (laughs) And the other agent was like, this is ready to go right now. And I thought, one of these people is right, and one of them is not. And I always trust the person who gives me notes. So I trusted her from the beginning because she wasn't afraid to tell me what was wrong with my draft. Wow. Um, The structure of Chosen Ones is interesting because between chapters, there are kind of pieces of nonfiction I mean, they're still fiction, of course, uh, because they're mm-hmm. part of this world, um, but they read like a magazine profile, FBI reports, newspaper stories, and they provide background and context for the fictional part of the fiction. Yeah. Was it difficult to switch from writing the story, you know, the main story to doing those little nonfiction style vignettes? 
I tried to switch back and forth at first, mm-hmm. and then I realized that wasn't going to work. So I wrote um, all of the narrative stuff in Chosen Ones first, and then I went back and wrote all of the interstitials, is what I call them, uh-huh. because they're hard to yeah, <laughs> summarize. Exactly. And then, of course, I went back to the narrative parts and adjusted them accordingly, uh-huh. because sometimes something you learn in the interstitial will inform the way that the narrative works. So I do, I mean, I always assume that I'm going to do a lot of revising. I hate rough drafts, so I just get them out and I'm like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix this now. So I do a lot of overhauling, um, but that's how it worked. I could only do like one interstitial a day, Whoa. even though they're quite short, yeah. because every single one required so much research <laughs> just to get the voice down yeah. and to get the kind of structure of it and what do these things sound like and what are reasonable things that like a government document would include and what kind of wording do they use and all of that Mm. was necessary for each one. One of the first ones is a sort of a very racy let's just say kind of profile of Sloan. That one feels like it was really quite personal. Had you kind of been the subject of profiles in that style? Certainly not to that degree. So for getting that tone I did a lot of reading of celebrity profiles of specifically white women in Hollywood because I think, you know, the way that we talk about white women in in a misogynistic way is different from the way we talk about any woman of color. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, since Sloan is in that category, I was very specific about what I looked at. Um, I read specifically one of Margot Robbie. I forget what publication it was in. And one of Scarlett Johansson and one of Britney Spears when she was kind of in her heyday as like an 18-year-old being sexualized by the media. So I read a lot of those in preparation to get the tone right. But yeah, I've had, uh, I don't know, uh, a couple profiles, I would say, that kind of described me and talked around me um, without really treating me as a person. Mm -hmm. So that was a, a little bit of a factor in it. But because, you know, an author is just in a different position than... A celebrity yeah. in this yeah, yeah. case. Yeah. So um, so it was a combination of both. I mean, I've never been so angry while writing something in my entire life. <laughs> Given the scale of your success, I know you must have been many times face-to-face with your readers and also kind of experienced readers as fans. How has that been? For the most part, it's great. Um, I actually love teenagers, so that's partly why I gravitated toward writing for them. Huh. I find them to be so honest, (laughs) sometimes to a degree that's horrible, (laughs) but they have no idea is the thing. Like you're 16, you're in front of an author that you like who maybe wrote a book you didn't like (laughs) and you tell them exactly what you think. And you know, about five years later, they're going to be like, oh God, why (laughs) Why did I say that? (laughs) So I really don't hold it against them. Um, But the other side of it is you get a lot of really honest insights from them. And I have always really appreciated that. So, you know, while sometimes it is difficult, you do get someone who's like just face to face with you telling you they think you're bad at your job. (laughs) But it's no worse than like my sister worked uh, when she was young at a J. Crew for a little (laughs) while. (laughs) And, you know, the stories she came back with were much worse than the ones that I deal with at book events. So, you know, it's uh, an exercise a lot of people are familiar with. You just remain professional and try not to take things too personally. Yeah, I hear that. Now, the style of books that you've written I'm, strikes me as the kind of work that conventions happen around. Do you have advice for people who find themselves in that kind of situation? Actually, on either side, either as somebody who's going as a fan or a viewer or as somebody who's going to have hundreds of people looking up at them. Well, I think from the 
kind of author side or the onstage side, take it in because it feels really frightening. You know, especially for for writers, we spend like over a year alone in front of a computer and then someone's like, here, go on stage, talk to people. And it's really terrifying. But you have to look around, take it in and appreciate it because like I will maybe never have that experience ever again. And it was incredible. And on the other side, I think asking more specific questions is always good because a lot of people will be like, what advice do you have for young writers at conventions like that? And it's just like, that's a really hard Mm -hmm. question to answer. So definitely like jump up, ask questions, but, you know, try to make them a little more specific, maybe more uncommon because uh, every creator loves to answer like a question they haven't been asked before, I think. Yeah. Um, Are there themes that you find yourself returning to as you begin new projects or that you see yourself having returned to when you look back at your body of work? Oh, wow. (laughs) Just no no big thing, just themes. (laughs) Yeah, I think uh, one of the themes that I find myself returning to is just the idea of moral responsibility. So what's the right thing to do? How do I do it? Um, And is it more complicated than Mm -hmm. I think it is? So um, I find that my protagonists, as I get older, are less and less sure of themselves. And uh, I think that's a pretty reasonable thing for any adult. The more you know, the more you know that you don't know. <laughs> and kind of chosen ones too, right? That there's somebody who's very special, who really can make a big difference in a huge society, but is still just a person, right? Yeah, a kind of the figures that we make into our heroes, they're actually very complicated. They have pain of their own and they need yeah. support. So that's another thing. I mean, I used to read, I grew up reading Chosen mm. One stories. I mean, mm. Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings, those are Chosen One stories. So I've always been curious about the emotional reality of those people. And that's, I think, where the idea for Chosen Ones came from, just my curiosity. That's awesome. Veronica, thank you so much for this. I really appreciate it, especially today <laughs> of all days. Thank you. This was really fun. Oh, I'm glad. All right. Um, Gosh, that really does sound like a different era. You know, Ramon and Isaac, I'm glad that you're both here today because what really stood out for me in that interview was the importance of feedback to her writing, showing your work to someone and trusting them enough to respond to their opinion before anybody else has seen it. That's so much trust. You're both writers. Do you have people like that in your creative lives? And if so, where did you find them? I do, absolutely. And um, the writer on whom I rely the most um, is a novelist who I met at a party, which is truly astonishing because I am 42 years old and I've never, ever met anyone I liked at a party. Um, <laughs> and her name is Lynn Stager-Strong. She's a brilliant writer. She's a very, she's become a very dear friend. And I think that when it comes to trusting outside advice, it's, it's a bit like romance. I think it's a matter of chemistry and a mm-hmm. sense of... Um, your own intuition about, oh, this is a person who's smart and who's going to be hard on me in the right way. I thought it was really interesting when Veronica talked about searching for an agent and that the agent she ultimately chose was the one who was much harder on the work that Veronica had submitted. And I think that Mm -hmm. that is a good instinct, that she wanted someone who she knew was going to be tough and not complacent and really push her to do her best work. And I think that approach has certainly served her well. I mean, this is her seventh book. She's an extraordinarily young woman. She's a very accomplished writer. And I think that you there has to be a relationship between her willingness to listen to advice. What about you, Isaac? Do you like feedback? Yes, particularly when it's praise. No. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, 
when we were doing the world only spins forward, Dan and I, we were that for each other because mm-hmm. you had a co-author and because it's a, it's an oral history, you know, there was no original prose in it. It was very easy to be completely egoless mm-hmm. about everything. And so we had a very complicated drafting process where one person would draft the chapter, send it off to another, the other, the other one would restructure it and edit it, send it back. And you just kind of do that back and forth until you had a chunk. And then one person would do a pass on that chunk. So, it got very refined over the course of that. Um, And then of course your agent, your editor looks at it and you get more feedback from there. So with the new book, I have to create that now. Mm. And, you know, one of the people that I know I'm relying on is my best friend from graduate school, uh, who's this woman, Sally Franson, who is a wonderful novelist who wrote a book called The Lady's Guide to Selling Out, which is a really fun, great novel that I love. And one of our professors at graduate school, the uh, novelist Charles Baxter, has this like very, very particular way of giving feedback that he designed. And, And when you study with him, you're as much learning how to do that and how to read the way he reads as you are learning how to write. And so we, whenever we talk about each other's work, we just lock right into that automatically and there's a shared vocabulary. And then I have another friend, the writer, uh, Catherine Nichols, who I'll be sending the book to as well to get thoughts from because you know she and I have been talking throughout about the book. So Sally doesn't know anything about the book, but we have a shared kind of feedback vocabulary. And Catherine, I've been talking about the book all throughout. And so she'll be able to say like, oh, I remember remember what you were going for here and you totally screwed it up or, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> and so neither of them are necessarily theater experts or subject matter experts. That doesn't feel as important? Uh, that's definitely important. I am knitting together a bunch of different subjects that individual people will spend their whole lives researching, yeah. you know, so... The life and work of Stanislavski, there are many people who have spent their entire careers just working on that. And so it is absolutely important to rope in subject matter experts. Uh, And I have a couple people on that list. I just have not actually made the ask Mm. yet. June, you're a producer. Mm. And so your work is creative, but it's also collaborative. And I wonder if you had some perception that creative work, you know, the the writer in in a garret somewhere or the painter in a studio somewhere (laughs) is just an individual pursuit that doesn't entail collaboration in the same way that what you do does. Well, you know, I have to say that I think um, the bigger bigger source of that feeling for me is that I'm an only child. So as far as I'm concerned, everything (laughs) is a singular effort. Um, I'm such a kind of a misanthrope, truly, that I just never quite believe that that collaboration is is as much fun as everybody says. I mean, the workshop (laughs) process, which clearly there must be something to it because people, you know, it seems like all writing programs do it. Uh, People praise it, but it just seems like hell to me. I must say, though, that having been in critique sessions where people who have been in writer programs or any other program that uses that kind of process, they really learn how to, you know, how to critique and how to express their critique. So I truly appreciate it. I just don't think that I would have the sort of fortitude to put myself through it. Have you gone through that, Ramon? I, as an undergraduate, I did. I did not. I did not go to graduate school. Um, mm-hmm. So I am a writer without an MFA. But mm-hmm. as as an undergraduate, I certainly did, and I've taught in that format, in the workshop format before. And I think it's analogous 
to people who maybe have office careers because you have to spend a lot of time in meetings and you kind of quickly learn who in the meeting is just talking for the sake of talking and who in the meeting is actually saying something constructive or useful Mm -hmm. or thoughtful or that connects, you know, and that will lead to actual productivity. So I think that you develop a sense, you learn how to read the workshop and you learn how to tell who has their own agenda and who wants to talk about their own work or sort of blather on about some arcane point and who actually wants to help you make your work get better. But I also think just as there can be too many meetings in the workday, there can be too many workshops or too many voices mm-hmm. in your head when you're working mm-hmm. creatively. And and listening to Veronica talk about her work, I also heard somebody with supreme confidence in herself and her ability, as she should mm-hmm. have. You know, she's mm-hmm. she's proven herself time and again. And she she had a way of talking about her reliance on other voices to improve Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. also to know that she is good at what she does. And I think that it's a balance that everyone has to find on their own. Yeah. As I said, I didn't, I don't have an MFA. I'm not somebody who pursued higher education when it comes to writing, but listening to Veronica talk, I was struck by the fact that she's kind of acting as a teacher. Like there's so much advice in just listening to her describe her craft. And I think there are so many opportunities now to hear creative people talking about what they do. And if you really listen thoughtfully, you can end up learning something that you can steal for yourself and you don't have to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars for a degree. I don't know. Isaac, did you learn anything that will be useful to your own work listening to Veronica talk about hers? Yeah, like you, Ruman, I was really struck by how rigorous she is about her own writing and how she seeks out that rigor from other people. In particular, there's the moment where she talks about the structural problem she created for herself in the Divergent trilogy and realizing that you've suddenly created this thing where you have to have a 30-page exposition dump and no one enjoys reading that. And, you know, how did you get in that place? And, And being able to think in that way of like, well, what is is, you know, the setup that's led me to this place, you know, that's a real clear sign of a kind of rigor about your own work that I appreciated. I also liked, because this is something that I try to teach when I teaching and I'm very fond of is how important imitation is Mm -hmm. to learning how to create. So, you know, she, there's a passage in chosen ones where she's writing a shitty media man profile of an attractive young woman. Right. And so she went and she read a bunch of them and got enraged about it as well. She should to learn how to write that form. And I, it's a, it's a thing I think about all the time that like, The two things that inspire creativity the most, at least for me, are actually, you know, imitation and research, Mm -hmm. uh, which are, of course, intertwined. And you can really see that she had this passage that she needed to write, and she went to those tools to try to figure out how to push ahead with it. And it's the thing that I try to drill into my students all the time, because I teach undergrad. And in undergrad, you know, they're always taught about the importance of originality. Mm -hmm. And I keep trying to tell them that, like, originality is what you do with the materials, it is not the materials. We all have the materials. It's what you do with them. So you go out and you get them and you figure out how they work. And, and that's how you're going to get better at what you do. And so I, I really appreciated that. Of course you loved that part, Isaac, because that's a bit like method acting, isn't it? 
<laughs> that, no, well, no, what she, what she didn't do is try to think of a memory of a time <laughs> when, when she felt belittled by an right. interviewer and then channel that, right? So, so but uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is in a way like an acting exercise. I, I also really loved that detail because I think it showed, again, one of the things that I just really admired about Veronica generally is just it showed her seriousness of purpose and this desire to to tend to what is ultimately, you know, a small part of a larger whole with real rigor and that she was going to do it and think it through and get it done at the highest standard. And that's a standard that she had set for herself. And I think that's really admirable. Yeah. And just learning, you know, small things like learning that this kind of writing wasn't going to work in the same way as the other stuff was. That because she needed to get into a new voice, get into a new head every single time, you could just do one a day and you shouldn't try to combine them and just, you know, take that lesson. Don't push it. Just take your take your time yeah. and, yeah. you know, take yourself seriously. I think that is really good advice. And it's not always easy to follow. That's a lot. Yes. It requires a lot of discipline. <laughs> yeah. All right, everybody, get back to work. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things we'd love to do with this show is help solve your creative problems. So if you've got questions about writing, whether you're trying to write a novel or even just a great email, or if you have questions about any aspect of creativity, send them our way at working at slate.com. If and when we can, we'll put those questions to our guests. And if you enjoy this show, please consider signing up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence, and you'll be supporting the work we do here on Working. It's only $35 for the first year, and you can get a free two-week trial right now at slate.com slash working plus. Thank you to Veronica Roth. Huge thanks to our producer, Morgan Flannery. And thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with a lovely conversation between Roman and the writer-illustrator, Myra Kalman. <laughs>